Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Modern love. How do you go about navigating friendship, dating, sex, family relationships, and everything else about love? in the 21st century. It's the question author, podcaster and Sunday Times resident agony aunt Dolly Alderton has been trying to answer since she was a teenager, from blogging online to writing an award-winning memoir. I really, really did think I knew what love was and what's important about love. And I kind of take back some of the things I've written. And I'm sure that I will feel the same in another five years. And now she can add screenwriter to her impressive repertoire. She's adapted her coming-of-age story, Everything I Know About Love, into a TV series for the BBC, which starts tomorrow night. It follows four friends as they learn about modern love. That's okay. I'm much better at things like you know, judging how long a car journey's going to take. Mm. You are really good at that. I love you. Oh, love you. Oh, I wish you'd wear pants. What lessons has Dolly learnt over the years? And what advice does she have to help us all navigate our way through modern love? Dolly joined us for a very honest chat, so prepare yourself for some strong language and themes of an adult nature. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Dear Dolly, Lessons in Love. Dear Dolly, should I be having sex on the first date? In the last year, I went on dates and the ones Dear I went Dolly, well ended up... Dear Dolly, I'm in my 20s and my mum has terminal cancer. I am reeling. I feel really silly being so upset. Dear Dolly, I froze my eggs five years ago and I can't decide whether to use them to have a baby on my own. How do I juggle enjoying my life and being there for her? I'm terrified of making the wrong decision. Things didn't work out for various reasons and I'm starting to think that sex on the first night had something to do with it. Dear Dolly, I'm a 23-year-old woman who six months ago came out of a five-year-long relationship. After a short mourning period, I've spent the last few months jumping from fling to fling. 
For years, newspapers and magazines have run agony aunt columns, inviting readers to send in their problems. At the Sunday Times Style magazine, those letters arrive in their droves for Dear Dolly. When these flings end, I feel an almost unstoppable urge to get straight back on the apps and find another one, and the cycle repeats. I'm incapable of being single. The thought of spending Sundays on my own fills me with dread, and even though I've been seeing loads more of my friends since coming out of my long-term relationship, I still feel lonely and miss sharing my life with someone. Wow. Yeah, it's like, the reason why I think that's such an interesting one is I think it keys into a very female problem of this time, of what is it to want to be independent and adventurous and curious and and live a full life as well as yearn for something kind of domestic and traditional and and rooted. But I also think that's just a very human instinct. It's the human schism that I'm most interested in of of Mm. that, that yearning for, for freedom and autonomy and wildness and that yearning for partnership and to lay down roots and make your own family and make your own home that kind of pull between nomadic and codependent, I think is quite extreme in most humans. And I think a lot of us are navigating that every day. That's fascinating. It's also just that thing that I see so much in female letters where the first half of the letter is, here is an issue that I'm having. Hmm. And then there's this sort of middle sentence that normally says, I know this is my fault, acknowledges some sort of fault of their own. And then the second half of the letter is, I'm really cross at myself for feeling like this. In that job, you receive letters every week from people with sometimes very, very personal problems. Just tell us about some of the ones that have really stopped you in your tracks. You know, it's not so much the ones, that the the individual ones that stop me in my tracks. The thing that every couple of weeks when I get, I get a huge bag metaphorical bag of letters um, <laughs> via email <laughs> from my editor every couple of weeks to choose from. And the thing that stops me in my tracks every time I receive them isn't normally an individual letter. It's the kind of commonality between the letters that come. Really? Week after week. Yeah, there's just the same, these same worries and these same anxieties that just keep popping up. And some of them feel like they're generational and they would have been the same letters that would have been sent to Claire Rayner or to Mariella, that it's just stages in womanhood, things that women worried about in the 1970s and the 90s and they're still worrying about now. And then there are kind of new things, new topical issues, often relating to the internet, often relating to our phones. Mm. But it's just the same thing over and over again. I remember I spoke to Jay Rayner, Claire Rayner's son, and Claire Rayner was arguably our kind of most famous agony aunt. And he said that the letters that she got were so uniform in their anxiety, as in there were multitudes of them, but it was basically just one of 300 problems that just kept going up, that she compiled a book. So when a problem would come in, she would be able to say, that's, you know, problem number nine, answer number three. Oh, wow. Mm. So it's quite reassuring about that, I think. Yeah, the human condition never really changes, even if all the influences around you do. Yeah, and that we're all just like sitting in our flats and sitting at our desks thinking that we're really getting it wrong and that we're 
harboring some secret and feeling ashamed and feeling embarrassed and feeling inadequate where when I read those letters that I see that to be not the case I see that that we're all united in our own very individual secret shame. So how do you go about how do you go about fixing that? I mean it's so rare that I'm ever given a letter where I have a really clear answer for someone where I say this is exactly what you're meant to do. The only time I have that and I feel confident doing that is if someone is writing in about a relationship that stands out to me as being particularly dangerous or imbalanced or unhealthy. Mm. You know that kind of trope of the agony aunt that everyone takes the mickey out of that's like it's perfectly normal and totally healthy. You know, like that's the <laughs> sentence that you would read about everything in Ms. Magazine. I now really understand why that's a trope of being an agony aunt because I do think that my job, one of my jobs as an agony aunt is to normalize. I always think the most helpful thing is to take the shame out of the question first and help the person writing it realize why they've got into that situation. And that many um, others have too. And many others have, yeah, exactly. And then I try and always widen it out, particularly when I'm writing to women. A lot of the time it, I can't pin the problem to a gender-specific, you know, societal-wide issue, but to be totally honest, most weeks I can. And then it's normally kind of helpful, practical advice. So, yeah. And also if they're writing in about someone else, I interviewed Graham Norton and he obviously was a agony aunt. Um, mm well, agony uncle for years. And he said, and I think about this all the time, the job of me is to empathise with the person they're complaining about, to help imagine the situation of the person that they're cross with. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So, so you're seeing the problem in the round. You're trying to to show them other perspectives when you're so completely caught up in your own misery or your own angst that you don't necessarily see them. Exactly that. I get a lot of messages from girls in their early 20s who are very anxious that they're not having enough fun, that they're not living their life fully enough, that they're not really? living a funds. Yeah, they're very nervous that they're not living their life properly and making the most of, of their 20s. And is that social media? Is that the pressure of seeing all your friends seem to be out every night, partying every night? And you only see a curated version of their lives. It must be. I mean, I think... Existential panic is existential panic. I'm someone who, when, and I know this will be the case when I'm 90, if I'm walking home at night from work, working late or from a quiet dinner with a friend and I see a group of people chatting and laughing and hanging out of a flat window smoking and there's music, I will immediately want to cry because I'm not in that party. <laughs> Always. That, that's extreme and I'm, FOMO. Yeah. And, and I don't, and I know I wouldn't have a good time in there. And I know actually I really want to go to bed. But there is something in me that just, the only way that I can explain it, because it's not about loving a party. I think it's about, I've got some sort of chip in me that just is so terrified of the end coming and having not lived it fully enough, not met enough people, not had enough long nights, not travelled to it in as many places as I could. And obviously the irony is that often those people end up feeling... Um, too crippled, really, to enjoy the life, the beautiful life they've been given every day. Some people are born with that and some people aren't. If you're someone like that, I think pre-internet or post-internet, you like you would have been worried all the time you're not living yeah. your life. But I definitely think with, with most young people who are having that fear about not having good time, 
definitely that has to be something to do with social media. And what sort of letters are they writing you when they sort of feel like they're missing out? It's basically always girls who write to me. And you can track a woman's life, really, because I get women of all ages. Mm. You can track a woman's life through basically this feeling of inadequacy and not being the right kind of woman. It's really sad, like it's, it's girls in their teens, is my youngest, who a lot of them are worried about losing their virginity. I get a lot of that. And then it's women in their early 20s who are worried that they're not enjoying life in the city enough. And then it's women in their mid-20s who are worried that their career isn't going where they want it to go. And then it's women in their late 20s who are really worried about finding a boyfriend. And then it's women in their 30s who are really worried about finding a person to have children with. And then it's women in their 40s who are worried that they're not being good enough wives or who aren't happy in their marriage or they wish they were single and they feel very guilty about that. And then it's women with teenage daughters talking about what shit mothers they are. And then it's even sometimes women in their 60s and 70s talking about their waning sex life with their partner who has erectile dysfunction or, you know, what they're not having such a regular sex life like they did in their 30s. And again, they're worried that that they're being a bad partner. So it's just this sort of slight, this, and and look, I'm, I'm not, that's not every single letter, but on the whole, that's the story that I'm getting every week, that it's just this like crib to tomb experience of womanhood, which is I'm not really being the right kind of woman. That's so interesting. There's all the expectations that you all, you end up carrying through life and that awful thing of looking around at what others are doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Somehow inadequate. So much of that sort of experience of just feeling like you're not somehow living right, that feels like the hardy perennial. That's what some of the earlier agony aunts like Claire Rayner would have come across too. Mm. How much pressure do you feel when you're answering these letters? You know, with Claire Rayner, I suppose there was sort of like a sense of, here's some wise words from somebody you you trust. Uh, Mm. But now, you know, there's sort of been the rise of podcasts like Esther Perel. So you've got psychotherapists plowing in with very regular updates on how you should handle difficult moments in life. How do you sort of navigate your way through that? Often there are letters that I really want to answer and they're just too serious. They shouldn't be entrusted to me. And it doesn't matter how many caveats I write in the copy where I say, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor. It's just too irresponsible, I think, for me to be answering questions that are particularly urgent or problems of acute pain. But in terms of, you know, I do think about the responsibility of it a lot. I've always wanted to be an agony aunt and I always knew that the agony aunt style that I wanted really? to go for, always. <laughs> is is that myself. because you grew up reading agony aunt columns? Or? Yes. And I grew up reading Nora Ephron, who's my favourite writer. Yeah. And her essays are you know just a woman saying like okay you want to live your life here's how you live your life like these are the kind of friends that you need this is exactly the right recipe for making egg mayonnaise this is (laughs) how you raise your children and I find something incredibly soothing about women like that these kind of dame like women giving me incredibly specific advice on how to make my life easier and more pleasurable and And sort of having a textbook, having a template to follow, which, you know, after school, I suppose, life just doesn't have one anymore. Yes, so true. And you don't have one anymore for, like, everything. I pitched myself as an agony aunt years ago to another magazine, the title of which we will not name. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
And um, they said no. And I was so insistent. I remember saying, wanting to do it so badly. I said to them, I, I know I can do this. I liked the idea that I had become known in my journalism and known in my nonfiction as being someone who is constantly trying to figure out their own shit. Mm. So I thought that in a way that was like very humanizing for an agony aunt. And the thing that I always say in my copy is I will always point out when I'm being hypocritical or when I'm giving advice to the person writing mm. that's basically advice for me. Here, look, I'll give you an example of the latest one that I've just filed to my editor. It was from a woman who was worried about a guy she dated. They had a briefing and he then just ghosted her. And she found out mortifyingly recently that the reason he ghosted her is he once went on her phone when they were dating and he saw that she had been Googling him. He thought that she was obsessed with him and then that was reason enough to apparently just like cut her out of his life in this very cruel way. And she is obviously very embarrassed about this and she was writing to me to ask like, should I confront him or not? I said to her like, here are what I think the pros are of confronting someone and I gave an example of when I have done that and um, the catharsis that it brought me. Mm. And then I also say what I really think happens with men like that when you confront them, which is, you're not going to be able to stop them from having a little horrible story about you. And actually you're giving him more material to go around and say, she's so obsessed with me. She tracked me down to talk to me about this. Yeah. So basically if you want to do it, don't do it to stop him from saying stuff about you. Do it for your own, your own integrity or, you know. Yeah. And I just hear, I said to her, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I really shouldn't give because I really don't follow it. Other people's <laughs> opinions of you is none of your business. The hypocrisy pouring out of my fingers and onto my keyboard as I write this. My God, the nerve. But it's something I've had to learn as a columnist. Hello, my weekly commenter base. As a memoirist <laughs> and most terrifyingly through being single, mostly single into my early 30s and therefore having dated a lot of people. There is no way of editing and censoring other people's versions of how they see you or their account of an interaction with you. You just can't do it and trying to do it is the biggest, ugliest waste of your life. But... Here's the magic trick. I'm still in the process of learning. A way of not letting it bother you. Have faith in yourself. Believe yourself when you know you did the best you could. Forgive yourself for being human. Googling someone you're dating is normal. Everyone does it. What is he? Some medieval cobbler who's never used the internet. <laughs> Be preoccupied only of the opinions about you held by the people you love or respect. Do you try to be a good friend, family member, partner and citizen? then you're golden, my girl. That's all the work that's required of you and there isn't a lot of time for much else. That's excellent advice. That's Thank lovely. You. <laughs> but there is that sense of it's not talking down to you, it's admitting that we all make those mistakes. But there's sort of a sense of it's it's like talking to your wise mate. <laughs> it's not sort of oh, going so. to a therapist or anything. It's just lovely and reassuring. And there's that Thank you. sense of universality of, of so many of the problems we encounter. Yeah, and I just, the thing that I've really realised since writing this column, it's like being the best journalistic job I've ever had. I love it. And something I've realised is maybe the reason why I always wanted to be an agony aunt wasn't so much to solve other people's problems, but it was to solve my own, actually. Because nearly every letter that I get, I see a fragment of myself in the letter I always can see something relatable in their problems and actually like when I'm when I'm writing that response to her 
I'm, I'm really writing to myself as well. I'm saying to myself, you know, you've got a TV show about to come out and you are still quite worried about what people say about you and little stories people have about you. And it's self-soothing as much as it's trying to soothe the person that I'm writing to. We decided to put the Sunday Times agony aunt through her paces by seeking advice on a series of modern issues. So, coming up, not quite everything, but certainly a few things that Dolly knows about modern love. But first. I'm Megan Agnew. I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine. I organise and write interviews with politicians, stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there, authors, artists and features on a whole range of issues. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TV show that Dolly mentioned earlier is her latest project, the BBC adaptation of her memoir, Everything I Know About Love. The series follows a fictionalised version of her called Maggie and her three friends as they move into their first house. To the first Friday night in our first London house. And to many more Friday nights. Look at all those Friday nights. As a screenwriter and producer on the series, Dolly has been able to use everything she's learnt from her writing to look at the big issues facing her generation. I'm constantly analysing and thinking about what it is to be a woman, what it is to be human, what it is to be a friend, what it is to be in love, a family member, all these things, what it is to grow up, particularly with TV, because with TV, it's so collaborative. So everything that you decide about character and everything you decide about story is debated and is really, really like rigorously discussed Mm. with a group of other creative executives and then with the channel and then sometimes even with actors. So it means that every day is this kind of ongoing investigation into what it is to be alive, I suppose. And I mean, how incredible that that gets to be part of my job. And is there something about people write to you with very intensely personal problems, they're sort of bearing their soul on paper. Is there 
something levelling, but also just reassuring about being able to do that yourself. You know, was it quite a useful process to sit down and write it? Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, I'll tell you a story that happened yesterday that was strange and it was it gave me a moment to think i've moved house and a, a woman that i've lived under a very nice woman i've lived under her for five years she saw that i was there and she kind of rushed down and i was standing in the doorway talking to the removal guys and she said Could, do you have five minutes now and i was like yeah and then she took me to one side and she said it's a dear dolly question oh wow and she was like can I just please, would you, do you mind? Can I just, I just really have wanted to ask you and now you're moving out and I need, I need to ask you before you go. And then she just presented me with this life problem. It, I don't know, it's a strange life to have created that I think that my life is like very unresolved. There are lots of things that I'm still really looking for the answers for. And I've really found my 30s very challenging so far. And I'm and I'm being stopped on my stairway like an emergency, like a doctor, because <laughs> it happens a lot. I get like stopped a lot with people, and they have say, "I've got something I need you to answer," and it happens in my inbox every day. It happens with letters to my agents. It happens when I'm like at parties and weddings and work functions and meetings even. Mm. And I am under no illusion. It's not because I'm any sort of expert. It's not because I'm wise. It's not because I'm clever. It's because I have been so fucking oversharing about my problems over the years in my writing. I spent my 20s writing about how I was fucking up constantly. I think that that has just engendered a closeness with certain types of readers. And I think it has engendered a sense of she has been through this no more than other people, but she's talked about it and processed it publicly. Therefore, to rebalance this very imbalanced reader-writer relationship of this woman whose entire life I know about, I'm going to bring her something of mine. And then we're like, that's more of a balanced conversation. And I- and That's a lovely thing. Yes, yeah, a beautiful thing. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's like a strange way to move through the world, but it is like, such a privilege. It, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, that is one of the huge benefits of writing about your life very honestly, is that people reward you with the same honesty back. But has it been difficult at times? I mean, you know, you started with the Sunday Times writing an always, always entertaining dating column. But mm. I mean, did that put relationships under quite a lot of pressure, for example? Do you know what? I feel very lucky with the, with the time frame that it all happened for me because this has been like 20 years. It's not just been, you know, the last 10 years. I was, I wrote a blog when I was like 14, 15 until I was in my early 20s. It was incredibly candid. Mm. It was like a diary, teenage girl's diary that I put online. And that ended up being like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words long. And then I worked out how to like, knock the edges of that and how to make that more journalistic. And then I was writing columns for askmen.com. That was my first ever column gig when I was like 24, <laughs> which was writing about dating and the launch of Tinder. Tinder just launched. I was kind of a bit of a frontline reporter for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was writing about love and yeah, my relationships. And then off the back of that, that's how then I got my column in Sunday Time Style when I was 26 for writing dating. And I knocked the edges off again and I streamlined it again. I took out more of those like granular details about myself and the men. I 
removed another layer of intimate writing of you know sex or writing about intimacy and then um and then it all culminated when I was 28 with writing a book which was kind of everything from my teens until that point that mm. I'd learned all my best stories all my saddest stories everything absolutely everything that I'd experienced and then I like closed up shop that was it from that point on I had a platform and a readership that meant I didn't have to write about that stuff anymore. Not that that's why I was writing it before. It was also because I really wanted to write it before. And because I had a smaller audience, I didn't feel so exposed. I then got this larger audience. I'd had a lot of eyes on my private life of my own doing from that book, doing much better than I thought it would. Um, How did that feel? It was just a huge surprise. And I was like gleeful about it for a year and a half. And then the only time that I was like, this is too much, was after the paperback came out. And I just, it just all hit me in one, really. And I just, um, I just, some, I just knew loads of stuff had to change in my life. And that was when I just basically decided to not share that much about my life anymore. And definitely not write about my personal life in, in any like present day way, any like clear present day way. So then since then, I just, you know, I barely really write about my love life or my sex life. And I'm so glad I did it for that period of time. But for now, it's not suiting me to do it again. How was it putting together a dramatised version of your book and working out which bits you wanted to show and which bits you wanted to smudge a bit? When I was writing the memoir, I was still like living it. You know, I was writing this memoir about my 20s while I was still in my 20s. And I remember a friend reading it. I was like, I'm still not really sure what that memoir is about. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> it's about a girl who really struggles to face reality. And I was like, oh yeah, that is a really interesting strand, not just to, about me, but about that age group of people. The fictional version of me in the TV show is called Maggie. And we decided to give her a job making reality, structured reality TV. We decided to do it because I think it spoke to something of her character, of the blurred lines between reality and fiction, of what is an elevated reality, what is for truth, what is it to to present a version of yourself that you think is more palatable to others and more interesting to others. It felt right that that character, that that was one of her big sort of inner journeys and inner quests about identity and reality it makes sense that that we extend that question by putting her in this job where she's supposedly showing people's real lives but in this very kind of dramatized glossed up way did you have to dramatize as much as possible did you have to draw some distance yes I did have to put some distance between me and the screen adaptation of the book because I I remember the first time when it was in development, I heard two producers having a debate about Dolly, like about her character and about why she found it so difficult to find love. And it was just too strange. I just, you know, it's too hard not to That's take... difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard not to take that personally. And then there's just no room for taking things personally like that when you're talking about like compelling plot and character. I didn't want that to get in the way of making it so... Yeah, it ended up being inspired by the book rather than based on the book. And that was completely the right way to go. Dolly, between putting together a, a TV drama which looks at so many of the issues that young people now 
do encounter and, and looking at the way we live. Between that and your job as an agony aunt, where you see such a cross-section of life and, and problems, we thought it would be worth throwing some at you, not quite in, in the style of a magazine quiz, but mm. but for people listening, there are some hardy perennials of modern life that I think they would probably quite like to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> to start with, uh, young people struggling with relationships. Now, one of the things that you often hear about is that, you know, the sense that this is a generation dating app, but also generation porn. Has that changed mm. the way relationships are conducted? And has it changed the way young men in particular now approach sex? Well, I am not going to speak from... <laughs> personal experience on this particular question um but particularly for the lawyers of the sunday times um but i what i will say is i do get a lot of letters from women who are in relationships new relationships with men who are young and healthy and they have a real connection a real physical connection and a real spiritual like mind connection but they um they can't make sex work it's really really common i'm speaking in vagaries here that the, the, the men's the men young men are suffering with erectile issues so it's something that i've like read a lot about because obviously i'm not um a doctor and i'm not a sex therapist but with the reading that i've done on my own terms and from experiences of talking with my friends about this stuff i do think that Porn has kind of ruined a lot of men's penises, young men's penises. Something that I've heard from young men, because I do get men right in as well very occasionally. Pornography, not for everyone. I really don't want to be like nihilistic about this. I think for some young men, when you're watching porn habitually from a really young age, like any kind of high, you are going to be seeking out a high that exceeds the last. What that means in porn is often seeking out images that are more and more extreme and that in some cases that that seeking out of the extreme, the escalating extreme, takes you with every step further and further away from from what the function of sex is. I don't mean biological function, I mean emotional function, which is either to have pleasure, enjoy pleasure and give another person pleasure mm. or to express your affection for someone, to express your interest in them, to express that you love them and care about them and that you think about them and you find them attractive. Now that then becomes like very confusing, I think, for young men who are equating a sex act with the stuff that they're seeing online, which brings them enormous shame and often is incredibly dehumanising. That is can be very, very confusing for men I think that also can be very confusing for women as well and I also know that it can give young men and women very warped ideas of what bodies should look like and that can make people feel understandably incredibly self-conscious when they're naked with someone for the first time self-consciousness and shame and embarrassment is like not the ingredients for having uh, good sex with someone so that is a very convoluted way of saying, yes, I do think it is an issue for lots of young people. 
And then it, when you add to that the way people date now, you know, dating apps and and the ability to keep swiping, has that changed relationships and people's attitudes to relationships too? Yeah, I mean, I just don't, it's hard. I've, I've talked about it so much over the years and I just don't want to sound too doomy about it all because it's just life changes, you know, things change. Like people used to meet because they're, parents introduced them and then that evolved and then people used to meet because they went to the same schools or universities and then that role people used to meet because they would meet in the workplace or their friends would set them up and we're just in a different evolution now I don't, I don't you know we're, people meet through this thing through this third party which is which is a digital party and it has its pros and cons I really have felt the unfairness of dating apps, the gender unfairness of dating apps when you get into your 30s, that's something I'm very aware of now. And I get, again, lots of letters from women writing about that and lots of my friends talking about it. When you say the gender that, unfairness. If you're a woman in your 30s who wants a child, which is not every woman, but if you are, everywhere you look from the age, to, from the moment you turn 30, you're being told by health professionals, by magazines, by targeted ads on YouTube, everywhere, you know, your friends who have children, you're being told constantly every day, time is running out. Even when you go home to your mum, like that's another place where it comes from. There are people telling you that you have a limited amount of time to do this thing and that you've got to think about it and you can't let the thought slip your mind because otherwise you're going to live in a pit of lonely regret for the rest of your life. It's really quite full on. It's like heavy when you get into your 30s if you want a baby, yeah, particularly if you're single. Dating then becomes like not this fun thing anymore. Dating is not this like way of filling a Friday night. It's not about meeting someone you're really going to get to, you know, love to hang out with or meeting someone who might end up just being a friend or just like enjoying the city and experimenting. Like that is all done. Those days are done. <laughs> like It's like every date you go on is this silent thing. It becomes this like job interview, which is like, are you going to give me the thing I really want? And obviously this is all like an unconscious thing and it puts a huge amount of pressure on women who are also, by the way, at that point, like finally fucking riding the wave of their career. Like the moment that we're told mm. that we have to like drop everything and comb the streets of the city to find a man who will be the father of your child is the exact moment when like, your career is properly taking off. And that is when dating apps, that is the moment when dating apps feel really unfair because obviously men don't have that pressure, that biological pressure. I understand like if I were a dude, if my career was taking off and I was in my mid thirties, I'd be like, no, sorry, I'm not settling down. I'm on a dating app. I'm going to go on a different date every week for the next 10 years. And then I might think about set settling down. And that's totally fine. Like, I understand that. But it leaves women in their 30s kind of screwed. I mean, it's interesting. You know, so much has changed in the way women work since the days of old agony art columns. They do have these amazing varied careers. They can really sort of author their own lives in many ways but when it comes to dating that doesn't seem to have changed so much I was really interested in the letter you sort of read out earlier where this woman didn't really know how to be single do you think that's mm. something that's changing are we better at navigating life alone or knowing how to be single um, I think I used to be quite ruthless about this I've been single most of my life and I really enjoyed being single I think that there is a huge amount 
to learn in a single state, I think that there's a huge amount of fun and romance to be had in your life when you're on your own. But I, I have had to concede that that is not everyone. And to, you also, there's no point forcing yourself to do something if you don't want to do it. And, you know, trying to find the lessons if there aren't any lessons there for you. Mm. For lots of people, they're just naturally predisposed to be in a partnership. I'm just a lone wolf. I just, I'm, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm find it, easier being single than I do being in a relationship. I think the main issue, what you're talking about is something that really interests me, which is there is this one place in life where women, particularly Western women, who have been told now that they basically can do anything they want and have everything they want. They can work for it, they can buy it, they can download software for it. There is one thing that they can't control and it's falling in love and having children. You can't control that in terms of if you want to do it a traditional way. Mm. That's always going to fuck us. That, you know, it's a cliche for a reason, but like Mother Nature is just like 10 waves of feminism behind us. She just like hasn't read the books. She hasn't changed our bodies to make them catch up with our minds and with our careers and where we are in life. So we're, you know, we're still constrained by, you know, and I keep saying lots of women aren't constrained by this. They don't, it's important I point this out. They don't think about the stuff, they don't care. And you know what? I wish I was them and I think they're fucking brilliant. <laughs> I wish I didn't think about this stuff. But really where I think that when you're talking about true equality in the workplace and particularly in romance, this is an insane thing to say and I'm aware how insane it is. I've had three coffees this morning. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen until we have artificial wombs that live outside of our bodies <laughs> that we can have where we can like gestate babies and have children in a quote unquote traditional way with a partner, but we can do it at any age. That's like, <laughs> that's when I think things might start changing. <laughs> you know, start changing maybe. I, I hope somebody out there is working on that now. <laughs> they are. I'm very, very abreast of all this stuff. <laughs> They're doing it with lambs. They're doing it. I'm very interested in all this stuff. It's a yeah. Work in yeah. progress. Yes. Dolly, for you, you've been writing about your life and relationships since you were a teenager for public consumption. But in writing about dating, in writing the Agony Aunt column, in writing the book and now the, the TV drama, what have you learned about love? When I revisit everything I know about love, something that strikes me always when I read it is how assured that person is who wrote it about what love is. I really, really did think I knew what love was and what's important about love, platonic love and romantic love and familial love. And I thought I'd sort of had all the lessons. And I think so much of what I wrote in that book was like challenged and so much was was turned upside down since it was published in my personal life. And I've learned so many new things and I kind of <laughs> take back some of the things I've written. Really? You know, yeah, to, not publicly, but to myself, I question constantly some of the things that I thought then. I, I'm sure that I will feel the same in another five years about how I feel now. Mm. It's so ever-evolving. The thing that I do know that I think I knew when I first started writing about relationships and love predominantly and 
that I hope will be a belief I always have. This is an incredibly trite thing to say, but like all trite things, it's because it's where the most truth lies. Love is the most important thing. I do think it is the meaning of life. I think the meaning of of a human life is the personal relationships that they have. That's the most important legacy you leave. I think those are the most important lessons you learn. I think that's where most life happens. It isn't in the workplace and it isn't on great adventure. I think it's in relationships and friendships. That's where life is. So that's why I just keep fucking writing about it. <laughs> just will not stop me. been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me manveen rana and my guest award-winning author journalist podcaster screenwriter and columnist for the sunday times style magazine dolly alderton you can find all of dolly's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in the style section on sundays Everything I Know About Love starts tomorrow, Tuesday the 7th of June, on BBC One at 10.40pm, and all the episodes will be available on BBC iPlayer. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk, and if you've got a problem you'd like Dolly to address do write to her at the Dear Dolly column at the Sunday Times. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.